when it's time for them to reproduce, they can pretty much make a clone if they want to, or they can combine. I think they've seen up to like five males genomes being involved in making a bebe. So the species is really justified by its mitochondrial DNA. Other than that, it's kind of just this matriarchal collective <laughs> that goes around having sex with a bunch of other species. But yeah, it's um, it's it seems to be a great reproductive strategy for them. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, and I'm going to be real with you all. This episode is about sex, all kinds of sex, which means, sure, there are spiders and dolphins and things, but it's mostly going to be about people having all kinds of sex with all kinds of other people. So if that's something you feel is not something you want to explain to the people within your hearing, this is your time to scroll on by and may I recommend some of the other episodes in our archive. I'll give you a second. Do, 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 do. Okay, we're back. Let's get freaky. I'm here with Rachel Feltman. She's the former executive editor of Popular Science Magazine, appears regularly on Cheddar, Science Friday, and MSNBC, and has written previously for The Washington Post. Now they've got a book, Been There, Done That, A Rousing History of Sex. Rachel, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I wanted to start by asking, why a history of sex? You know, there's a lot of sexy stuff in the world. The internet is for porn. <laughs> it's all thirsty TikToks and guides to the vagina and the Kama Sutra. Why did you think this book was particularly important? Yeah, well, I actually started out, you know, years ago when I first started working on the proposal for this book um, with my uh, agent, Jeff Shreve. Uh, the idea was to write about the history of sexually transmitted infections in uh, a really like deep and funny way um, because I love reporting on sexual health um, and I know that STI stigma is the worst and most dangerous thing about STIs and I was like we're gonna we're gonna bust this wide open and then in the course of writing the proposal um, there were a few things that happened, mainly someone else uh, just beat me to the punch in writing a funny book about STIs. Uh, and when I saw that, you know, blurb for that book deal, I was like, hmm. And now that I think of it, I have been kind of stuck on this proposal. And maybe the problem is that I actually want to write a book about more than just STIs. Because in the course of doing my research, I was like, wow, there is so much to say about how we have sex and how we talk about having sex and how we treat sex as a concept in the natural world and like how completely uh, arbitrary what we think of as normal is. And how I think in right now in particular, when I say right now, I mean like in this kind of like era of science, let's say the last like 150 years, there's this real sense that like, we are now rational. We now know what the laws of biology in the universe are. And so we can look back with disdain on like our superstitious ancestors. And now the world is ruled by reason. And I, I don't think it's super controversial uh, to say to another science writer that we know that that is not true. Um, humans remain very unreasonable and irrational. And there's so much, we have just started to know how much we don't know about the natural world. So that is a very long-winded way of saying that I knew I wanted to write about sex and write about some of the ways that like we're taught to feel bad about sex uh, and how a lot of that is really just social nonsense. Um, it's not based on anything uh, real and I mean, social nonsense is real, but it's not, there's not like a, a, a natural law that governs what sex is and isn't that is the same for everyone. And I just decided that because I'm really stupid, I was going to write the book about the entire history of sex, a very light skim. It's really more about introducing people to the concept that they might not know as much about sex as they thought they did. Um, so yeah, hopefully I did that. <laughs> 
So it's it's just the tip is what you're saying. It's just the tip. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to be making so many terrible <laughs> jokes. I'm sorry. I'm Please 12. Do. Please it's do. all bad jokes all the way down. Um, but I also wanted to start with a definition. What is sex? Because as your book makes clear, <laughs> this is not what happens when a man and a woman love each other very much or when a penis goes into a vagina or anything like that. What is sex in the most like scientific, dry version? Well, the thing is, Bethany, I was actually in preparation for this show based on a couple of questions you asked. I was like, why didn't I like open the book or some chapter with like a dry definition of sex? And it's because there like isn't one. <laughs> There's a dry definition of reproduction. There's a dry definition of uh, sexual intercourse. Uh, sex is this word that means a bunch of different things, one of which is related to or involving sexual activity. So it's a very circular definition. And this is in Merriam-Webster. <laughs> what is sex? Well, it's what happens when you have sex. Exactly. So, you know, that's not to say that scientists don't know what they're talking about when they refer to sexual reproduction. You know, sexual reproduction at its core is, you know, two organisms meet in some fashion, their cells meet at least, they share information and that information has the potential to become a new being. Um, of course, you can have reproduction that's not sexual and you can have sex that's not reproductive. <laughs> so there is really no one definition of sex, which is wild when you think about it because we sure do act like there is a very straightforward thing that is sex and everything else is sort of, eh? <laughs> yeah. And, and what's really funny is of course, like we, we talk about sex, like it's this thing that has always existed, but it seems appropriate to begin the history of sex with something from Genesis in the beginning, <laughs> there was no sex. There were cells and they made clones of themselves and they kind of made a bloop sound. I hope <laughs> little tiny bloops. Um, I was wondering, do we know when sex began? Do we have kind of a ballpark? Yeah, it, the ballpark is like one to two billion years ago. So um, a long time, but Earth is, it's 4.6 billion years old, right? Around there, yeah. So it's, a, it's more than a billion or two billion years old. Um, and uh, it, you know, it started when um, that last eukaryotic common ancestor uh, or whatever amalgamation of organisms we now refer to as the last eukaryotic common ancestor, which is something I have a throwaway, one of many throwaway lines of, this could get way more complicated. We're not doing that here. <laughs> but anyway, that was around the time when uh, some organisms started making sex cells. And um, it definitely didn't like immediately pivot to sexual revolution. Uh, it, it still would have been able to reproduce asexually. Um, but yeah, that's when it seems like some, uh, some sort of algae, there's a, an algae called, uh, Bantiomorpha pubescens because it's the first known evidence of sexual maturity of life on earth. Um, which I think is a little, a little on the nose, but sure. Um, I mean, honestly, like Bantiomorpha, <laughs> Bantiomorpha pubescens. Yeah. Like. I'm sorry, that name is so bad. Its voice is changing and it's got hair where it never had hair before. Come on. Uh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was a little more than a billion years ago. And that that is like, we have fossilized evidence that, um, you know, these were sexually producing uh, organisms. They were not and, unicellular bacteria no more. So when you say like sexually reproducing what does that mean? They were multicellular and like some of their cells were specialized sex cells? Yeah. So um, they had three distinct morphologies. Um, so they had cells that could they could use to reproduce asexually, but they also had male and female cells. Um, so pretty similar to how modern algae uh, in this genus reproduce. Um, they they were multicellular, but still very simple. Uh, and some of their multi cells were for 
combining with other multi cells <laughs> and making new algae babies. Um, and I also wanted to go back. So these are all eukaryotes. We yes. are eukaryotes. Um, prokaryotes that just divide. They don't copy, like they, they, they don't just copy paste DNA. So like prokaryotes reproduce by, they clone their own DNA, they make a copy and then mm-hmm. they split. Yep. A little bloop. <laughs> and, but they also trade little bits of their DNA back and forth. This is known um, in particular, for example, it's the one of the methods by which you can produce antibacterial resistance. You can yes. take an antibacterial resistance gene and a bacteria and the other bacteria can hand it off to its buddy like, hey, you want to try drugs? <laughs> um, and I was wondering, they're trading DNA, right? Yeah. In the pursuit of making more than of themselves. They are recombining yes. genetic material <laughs> in pursuit of... Very dangerous, Bethany. <laughs> Why isn't this sex? I is I it love, sex? <laughs> I love that question because I think you can absolutely make the argument that this is sex. They are trading genetic information so that they can reproduce more successfully. Um, I think that's a great example of um, just how much we lose and how much we limit ourselves when we start out from our assumptions of like, well, this is how we're pretty sure it works in humans. And so everything else will be judged in comparison to that, you know, like that sexual sex is a thing that happens when a, you know, a, a cis man and a cis woman have penetrative intercourse and there is a possibility of getting pregnant and they make a baby that has half of each of their DNA. And so when you define how reproduction works in other organisms in comparison to that, like, yeah, it makes sense that prokaryotes trading DNA to make their offspring clones better doesn't get called sex. But also, why? (laughs) I think, you know, in writing the book, I really came to think of like sex as being um, a, you know, even once I start that sentence, I don't know how to say what sex is if I'm trying to be really broad about it, but it's, there's kind of two definitions. There's either sex is sharing genetic information uh, with the aim of producing offspring, right? And then there's sex is uh, a physical and or, you know, emotional interaction that occurs in the pursuit of pleasure. (laughs) Um, And we're really bad at actually including everything that should be under those umbrellas, um, at all, let let alone together in this one thing called sex, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's funny because, you know, that makes you think of things like, for example, external fertilization, like Mm -hmm. fish, one produces eggs, the other produces sperms. There are exceptions to this. Um, many exceptions, but anyway, (laughs) in a classic fish, (laughs) um, one produces eggs, the other produces sperm and the eggs are in one place and the sperm kind of like settles on top of it. And, is that sex? They're combining their gametes. Okay. Are they enjoying themselves? I have always actually wondered if the fish are enjoying themselves. You know, <laughs> like, there are fun. <laughs> I think there are fish that that have some fun. Uh, but we don't we don't know a lot about fish sex. So <laughs> I don't know a lot about fish sex. I should, there are probably people out there who know loads about fish sex. Um But again, we are very self-obsessed when it comes to researching the natural world. So of course we know way more about uh, mammals, especially other primates, um, because what they do reminds us of what we do. And that's interesting and validating. And I think the further away you get from something that looks like uh, a, a married man and lady in the, you know, in the marriage bed, the more you see 
especially like 19th and 20th century uh, scientists being like, that doesn't (laughs) count. We're not going to write this one down. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't count. It's secret. Um, So, you know, you mentioned this algae that um, has an awkward name and um, (laughs) has sex cells. This was not put a dong in a whole sex, right? For that, we're going back to like 385 million years to another awkward name, (laughs) Microbacchius dickei. Yeah, um, I I just call it M. Dicky. Uh, oh, so much better. <laughs> which is the name is um, okay. I I definitely want to talk all about this bonefish, um, and I'll I'll get to why the name is so fantastic in a second. Boner but yeah, fish. so <laughs> I know it's bonefish. <laughs> um, it just it gives and gives. Um, so yeah, this was a a little less than four hundred million years ago, and it's our first fossilized evidence of um internal sexual reproduction so like uh, an appendage of one goes into a hole in the other and that is how the fertilization happens before that again there was maybe some 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 glooping of cells maybe some spraying onto eggs uh what have you but this was the first time that something that looks like uh what we consider penetrative sex occurred and was fossilized and it's very hard to turn into a fossil uh especially with like your genitals intact so it's probably older than this fish but thank goodness this bony fish survived um died in the act <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh there are thank you poss- for your sacrifice M. Dickey. <laughs> <laughs> uh and they were found um in in scotland um and they have like uh the the male has a genital arm and the female has a clasper a genital clasper so it's all very sensual um so this kind of like l-shaped appendage would be coming off of the male and the female would kind of grab it <laughs> and um the researchers when uh, a paper came out a few years ago that was like wow yeah this is evidence of intercourse um and they <laughs> were like it was they did it side to side like they were doing the toasty dough and i which is among my one of my favorite uh quotes of a researcher about their work um but when the fossils were actually found um back in i i think the 1800s uh but thereabouts by a a baker slash like naturalist because everybody everybody was kind of a gentleman fossil hunter or a gentlewoman fossil hunter at that time um a lot of a lot of like scottish fossils were found by just kind of like uh europeans who had the means to stroll in the sand but um his name was robert dick so the fossils are named after him and we didn't know until a few years ago that they they do indeed have um they have a a richard of some significance in in their body in their fossilized form so that's one of my favorite coincidences that I, that I learned while writing the book does does this ever make you feel that like your your own name is not as suggestive as you would like like you can't <laughs> with like I feel like my own name now just does not lend itself to a really good suggestive scientific nomenclature I mean when I published my book I had more than a few dudes of a certain age tweet at me like oh nominative determinism which I think really shows how narrow most people, the most people's view of sex is. Cause to me, felt man does not imply sex at all, <laughs> but sure. I, actually um, that I didn't even put that together. I, you know what? I, I, I think it's, it probably is says good things about you that you didn't. Cause I don't think it's a very good example of nominative determinism, but it has been brought up. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, um, things in holes. And we've also talked a little bit about fish and algae, but none of this, this answers the how of sex and the when of sex, but it doesn't answer the why of sex. And 
Many of us probably learned in school that sex is important because it creates genetic diversity. It allows us to kind of generate more good mutations and maybe potentially avoid consequences of bad mutations. Um, but it's also less of our genetic material that gets passed down, right? We only pass down half right. as opposed to the whole thing, which is why some species switch back and forth between asexual and sexual reproduction. Mm-hmm. But other species, which includes us, went all in on sex. Why? What is the argument for going all in on sexual reproduction? I think it was a mistake. (laughs) Personally, I've looked at the evidence and I think I would like to talk to whoever made that call. But yeah, that is kind of one of the million dollar questions about the origin of sex. Uh, Because, again, when you step away from this, you know, kind of 19th, 20th century mindset in science that humans are like the pinnacle of something. Um, and that like the way we reproduce must be the pinnacle of reproduction, just as our cognition must be the pinnacle of cognition. If you can't tell from my tone, that is not what I think about humanity as a species. Um, but so when you step out of that mindset, even a little bit, then you can start to ask questions like, but is it actually the best way to keep a species thriving? Um, Like you said, there's like the classic, yes, we have more sexual. Like you said, there is uh, that classic uh, sexual reproduction drive we learn about in school, which is it gives us more genetic diversity. Things are getting mixed up all the time. You know, gene combos are recombining. Um, And that's true. But like you said, there are species that can um, reproduce asexually and sometimes sexually. And, you know, we see this in like some lizards and sharks that can do parthenogenesis. Um, But there are also, you know, like plants that can either combine with other plants or just kind of like keep budding, keep doing their thing. Um, And that seems pretty smart because there are situations where it actually is much less costly to just do the whole thing on your own. Um, You know, if every time you meet up with someone sexually and recombine your genes, you're risking that your gene that gives a really important advantage in a particular scenario won't be the one that gets passed on to your offspring. Um, And you're also like risking that this other partner might not um, contribute everything that they should to like the rearing of the child, which, you know, varies a lot depending on your species. Um, It's a huge gamble. If you can just like kind of stay with your family unit who are all like invested in each other's success and keep budding, (laughs) like there are times when that's really smart. And especially, um, you know, if times are good, like the environment isn't changing a lot. there's enough resources, then it actually makes way more sense to just reproduce clonally. Cause like you already, you know, you have the skills required to survive in this environment you're in. That's uh, some researchers think that that's why parthenogenesis uh, seems to happen more often in zoos. Cause it's like the snake is like, Oh dang, this is a great setup. <laughs> I can just, <laughs> I, I could thrive here for generations to come. Um, And on the other hand, sexual reproduction gives uh, more opportunity for like strange new combinations to come out or uh, for more mutations to occur. Um, Of course, all of us experience genetic mutations constantly, but like a lot of the most impactful ones are the ones that you are uh, born with. Um, And so, you know, that whole period of reproduction and gestation provides an opportunity for like people to come out with strange new traits. Now you are talking about, you know, sex and, you know, we obviously went in on sex. And I love that in this book, you don't just ask why sex, you ask why men or (laughs) males rather, because species can reproduce without males, you know, as in the snakes living their best lives in the zoo. And I was wondering, there is this wonderful experiment in beetles, which shows the point of males. (laughs) And it made me very happy. And I was wondering if you could talk about the bang in beetles. 
Yeah, I, I love that study. It's one that I, I covered, I think, back when I was at the Washington Post. And I was so gleeful in covering it. And um, a bunch of old men hated how gleeful I was about it. And I was like, look, you're vindicated by this Beatles study. I don't know what you're mad at me about. Um, so what these researchers did was they took a bunch of Beatles and in some of them, they... Um, gave them a ton of mating choice. Um, They were basically, they were like, so if sex is good for resilience, then it should probably be the case that being able to be pickier about who you have sex with um, makes you even more resilient. Because like, if sex is good, then picky sex must be better. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, they took away mating choice pretty much entirely uh, for one group. And I think they had maybe three levels, but something similar to that, where it was like, then there was a little bit more mating choice. Uh, so basically meaning, you know, the ratio of males to females. In one, the females really had almost no choice, maybe literally no choice. There was like one male for one female to meet with. Um, and then they had a little bit more choice. And then it was like a totally like San Francisco 10 years ago dating ratio. <laughs> so like uh, a small number of lady beetles had a huge number of male beetles to pick from. Uh, they were the bells of the ball. And they let this go uh, and then took the resulting beetles and they did um, inbreeding studies with them. So they force them into groups where they would be uh, reproducing with their close relatives um, because that's how you shrink the genetic pool, right? You know, every generation you have that's inbred means you are, the pool of available genes becomes smaller and smaller because you're not pulling in uh, new ones. You're dipping back into the same shared pool. Um, so, the idea was that they wanted to see how many generations of inbreeding it took for the beetles to start not doing so good. And sure enough, the ones that had had the most mate choice uh, were doing really well much after uh, the other groups had started to like die very young or not be able to reproduce at all. So it basically showed in this roundabout experimental way that when you have more mate choice in the population, when uh, females can be pickier about sex, when they can look for specific traits in their potential sexual partner, um, that then there seems to be more genetic diversity, uh, at least based on how quickly it took inbreeding to <laughs> make the family tree a stump. Um, and this in a way, might help us understand why men exist. Um, because as you alluded to, it's kind of a mystery, um, which sounds like a joke, but it really isn't. Because sorry, the thing guys, is that- really, it's not. <laughs> there are among even animals that reproduce sexually, or like, you know, one organism meets another, uh, and especially- um, you know, kind of smaller, simpler organisms and plants, but including, you know, organisms we think of as, as being more complex. Uh, they, even the ones that like meet up and exchange information to make babies, a lot of them are hermaphroditic. Uh, they can play either role or, you know, again, there's that switching between asexual or sexual reproduction. It's strange for so many species to have evolved so that there is one phenotype that is capable of carrying offspring or, you know, laying eggs, producing the physical offspring, and one that is necessary for uh, fertilizing that offspring, that it can't happen without them. It just seems so inefficient for those to be two separate bodies. <laughs> Um, and th so the question is why, you know, why aren't we all just sexual Swiss army knives? Um, 
that would make a lot of sense. Uh, but yeah, the, the Beatles thing, you know, is evidence in favor of this theory of sexual dimorphism, where it's like, it's, it's about being able to, um, sort of foster different types of, uh, genetic advantages. Um, I've, I've seen, I've seen people explain this as like, it's sort of like, if you are going to have multiple sexes, the non gestating sex is sort of like an evolutionary, like doodle pad. <laughs> like you can have traits that aren't super awesome, but that have some benefit and the male kind of lives fast and dies young, but he like manages to reproduce a little bit anyway. And then you still have the kind of like very valuable eggs with a ton of energy involved. And like uh, they have to spend the time gestating and, you know, whatever kind of infant care is necessary in this animal. So the idea is that like the reason we evolved to have multiple sexes and that we aren't all able to play every role in reproduction is that uh, men evolved such as they are to go out and try stupid things genetically. <laughs> I love that, though. I would really love the idea of being a Swiss army knife because I would like to think that maybe I would come with a can opener. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Be so much more efficient and like a wine opener, man, I'd get so much more use out of my life. Um, oh, yeah. So as you mentioned, though, you know, we have many people think that there are two sexes and mm-hmm. sometimes they confuse this with two genders and then they post mean things on Facebook and it's a symbol <laughs> of life. But really, there do not have to be two sexes. And so we know we well, we don't really know what sex is as an act. <laughs> They do not. But what is a sex? Yeah. So um, I get into, you know, sex as it uh, pertains to like identity and, you know, biological um, role. And I think the the most accurate way to describe what a sex is, is that it is the role in your species um, that you play in the reproductive equation. Um, And there are people who uh, are born unable to play either role or who have, you know, uh, a physiological um, design that could hypothetically be involved in either role and a lot of people are like well those are like that's those are people who are outliers like that doesn't mean there are there are more than two sexes but when you look at how sex works in the rest of the animal kingdom and like when you're really honest with yourself about how it works in humans it's more about like there are these two major buckets that are like sperm or egg. And then there are a lot of variations that can occur. And you might, yeah, a lot of people fall pretty squarely in either bucket, but there's a lot of splashing in between. There's a lot of people getting hurled to the other side of the room. And it's all just so much more complicated and so much more interesting than that. And there are animals where there are way more than two sexes um, I, I talk about one study in the book um, on some finches that seem to be evolving to have four sexes, um, because if your definition is like your sex is what role you play, like who else you can have sex with, uh, again, this is a very, becomes a very circular definition, but uh, these birds, there are two uh, like phenotypes, um, like colorways. And then there's, uh, your traditional kind of male female split and they're evolving so that they can only actually reproduce with 
both their opposite sex and their opposite colorway. Um, so it's becoming much more complicated for the species than just like, I am boy or you are girl. And um, it's I am boy and you are girl and also have incredible taste yeah. <laughs> in that particular feather color. <laughs> yeah. I can't and they seem stand to have kind of the other color differences too. So that they're, they're creating these kind of like matched sets that are um, again, it's, it's like working on a whole extra like dimension. <laughs> um, it's kind of 3d gender uh, if you will. But um, yeah, I think in my book, I really try to just get at how complex biological sex is in the natural world and how little we understand it. Um, and just that, you know, it's uh, recognizing that sex is more complicated than just a straightforward binary um, doesn't mean that there aren't lots of people who are men or women who were identified that way at birth. And I think a lot of people sort of um, feel that this is about taking something away or like erasing scientific fact. And I make a comparison to our definition of what a species is that most of us learned in school, like a species is like a thing where every member of the species can reproduce sexually together, you know, and make babies. And then it's like, well, actually, like, have you heard of a, a, you know, a mule? And then people are like, oh, well, then the answer is just that they have to be able to reproduce and make babies that aren't sterile. But it's like, yeah, well, ligers can have babies. <laughs> so, well, and it gets even closer to home than that. Like dogs, everyone's like, oh yeah, dogs can't mate with cats. No, but they can mate with coyotes. Yeah. And yeah. wolves. Yep. <laughs> and all those offspring can mate with each other. <laughs> and then you, you look back at, um, you know, our evolution and I, I'm, I'm 30 and I'm still old enough to remember when like, you know, uh, Discovery Channel documentaries were like, and so we immediately killed off all the Neanderthals and humans were alone, superior, alone, the only humans. And now we know that like there were many uh, different flavors of human around at the same time, many of which we interbred with. And, um, you know, there are some researchers who will be like, well, we don't really mean we're talking about different species when we say that, but that isn't exactly the point. <laughs> like when, when we talk about a species as like a very straightforward box that we really understand the lines of, that's not really true. It's kind of just a, a word that we use to mean uh, it's pretty different from this other thing we're talking about. And I feel like uh, sex is kind of the same where what we knew a hundred years ago, surprise, is not the whole story. And that doesn't mean like uh, it's raining ligers. It, it just means we, we have more to learn. Um, and it isn't unscientific to uh, to say that, you know, a, a binary is a, a reductive way to look at uh, biological sex. Um, I, I really don't think that it is. Uh, and I do also understand uh, that it can feel that way to, to people. It can feel anti-science, uh, but I implore them to, <laughs> to think about science as uh, a means of inquiry and not a body of uh, facts that are written in stone. Cause I really hope we continue to learn things. Cause there's definitely a lot we don't have right yet. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that I actually, I learned from your book that I enjoy so much <laughs> is that there are some species that don't have multiple sexes. They are just females and then they mate with males of other species. Yes. Like, kleptogenesis. They, they just like, they just go for anybody else. <laughs> Yes. And this is just awesome to me. Like way to outsource your genetics, girls. Yeah. Get in there. No, I I love the um these are salamanders and they the method of reproduction is called kleptogenesis, which I think is just a great word. And yeah, they um they just kind of like collect uh sperm and store the genetic material. When it's time for them to reproduce, they can pretty much make a clone if they want to, or they can combine 
I think they've seen up to like five males genomes being involved in making a bebe. So the species is really justified by its mitochondrial DNA. Other than that, it's kind of just this matriarchal collective <laughs> that goes around having sex with a bunch of other species. But yeah, it's um it's it seems to be a great reproductive strategy for them. So speaking of you know, having sex with things that, you know, some humans might find odd. So we know birds do it, bison do it, educated fleas do it. Um, (laughs) Many species exhibit queer behaviors. So male bison mount other male bison, female bison mount other female bison. They bison, 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 bison. (laughs) (laughs) Two penguin males will raise an egg together. Um, for a long time, scientists tried to dismiss these behaviors. You know, they'd say things like, oh, it's, it's these desperate bison boys trying to get practice or something. There was this idea <laughs> that queerness must be an aberration outside mm-hmm. of the norm, that straightness was the evolutionary norm. But you note in the book that there's a new line of thinking that says this might not be the case, that it actually might be queerness that is the default setting. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that hypothesis and how it would work. Yeah. So um, my favorite paper on this uh, came out in, I think, 2019 in uh, one of the nature journals. Um, And it was just kind of like a a theoretical paper, a a thought experiment. But um, I think it's a really important thought experiment and it kind of feels very um, eye opening. So basically, these researchers, um, I think a bunch of ecologists and biologists, uh, were like, well, why we ask how queerness could have been introduced to, to sexually reproducing populations because it doesn't lead to creating offspring. So what purpose does it serve? And as I get into in the book, there are actually a lot of evolutionary purposes that um, same-sex sexual attraction can serve. Um, Not that that is necessary for it to be real and something that people should mind their own business about, but just to be clear, it also- Yeah, I mean, it also should be clear that like, not every biological quirk needs to have a purpose. Exactly. To yeah. be a valid biological quirk. Absolutely. But it does have a purpose. So, <laughs> um, but this paper was like, why are we asking where queerness could have come from? Why aren't we asking why we're not all queer? Um, because similar to the sort of like, why are men thing where it's like, why aren't we all just self-replicating sometimes sexually reproducing uh, hermaphrodites or, you know, an organism that just has one sex? Um, Why don't we all just be queer um, and, and like having sex with all sexes? Um, And they're suggesting, like, it is very likely that the earliest sexual reproducers were immobile, multicellular creatures, and they wouldn't have been able to, like, clock a member of the opposite sex. They were blobs. (laughs) So this is a very reasonable uh, thought experiment they pose where they're like, wouldn't it have made more sense in the ooze for these first sexually reproducing multicellular organisms to just kind of be like literally bumping uglies. Like I run into you. Ooh, magic happens. I run into them. Ooh, magic happens. Um, And it would have just been like pretty impractical for an organism that simple to develop sexual dimorphism and also like all of the sort of mating rituals that have to come with that because you have to like determine uh, what sex the other partner is. So they're just like, why haven't we visited this version of the the history of sex? Um, Because so much of the way sex has been studied 
is really biased toward kind of like uh, white European Victorian Moors, <laughs> because that's like their ideals and norms were driving the conversation when we kind of decided how science worked and what science was, you know, um, and in a very real way, we're still shaking off those biases. And in many cases, refusing to shake them off because we don't want to admit that they're biases today. So, you know, as you know, probably early sexual reproduction, you know, couldn't afford to be choosy. Um, and also, as you mentioned in the book, same sex pairings um, and, you know, people who identify as something other than, you know, one of the two genders they were given or, you know, all sorts of different pairings and alternatives have existed in every known society throughout history. There are no exceptions to this. There's only the the only exceptions are the degree to which they were hidden. Right. And this actually made me wonder not why people might be queer or gay or lesbian, but why other people keep trying to make it go away. Because throughout history, I keep seeing, oh, you know, you have these societies that have more accepting periods, and then another regime would come along, and all of a sudden you can't say gay. And I was wondering, you know, this clearly is natural. It happens in multiple species. It happens across societies. Why do we keep trying to say it's not? Yeah. Um, I wish I had a great answer for that. Um, what it what that question does bring to mind me for me is um the paradox of tolerance. I don't know if you're familiar with Karl Popper, but um I I first heard it doing a like philosophy of science course back in undergrad, and it's it has really like haunted me. Um, because it's basically this idea that um unlimited tolerance will lead to the disappearance of tolerance uh, because you need to be intolerant to intolerance. Otherwise people who were will that otherwise people who are intolerant will be allowed to organize and amplify and echo chamber and spread misinformation. And they will not actually want to live in a tolerant society. So they will overcome the tolerant members of society and take control of society. Um, and I know that's kind of a bummer and also not science <laughs> exactly, <laughs> but um, it does come to mind when we're looking at these cultural movements around queerness and sort of how it's not, um, I think a lot of times people like to think of sort of cultural evolution as being very linear um, and that like things were regressive and now they're progressive but it's all the arc of the universe bends toward justice. Exactly. Yeah. But it's, it's all much more complicated than that and very twisty turvy. And I think that I think of the paradox of intolerance as uh, the paradox of tolerance rather as like one of the reasons for why it feels like, you know, things will get pretty good, pretty tolerant, and then something comes along. Um, and I think too, that just um, sex, is it is not just about reproduction, but it is very closely tied to reproduction. And reproduction is very tied to like the workforce, the rulable population, you know, the um the balance of power, um people living in nuclear families, uh, even though that is not like something that goes deep into our evolutionary past. It is something that like, um, you know, the agrarian revolution and capitalism made very, it is very useful <laughs> to like a capitalist society for us to be in nuclear families. Um, and uh, I won't go on a tangent about the history of organized religion and the power structures therein. I think there are so many factors that go into determining how a particular society at a particular time feels about queerness. Um, but that could be true said of so many other things too, uh, how they feel about gender roles, um, you know, how they feel about class or caste. So I don't think, you know, same-sex attraction is unique in that 
it is one of many things that can be used to create like an other, you know, and uh, humans historically have loved to create groups of us and them. And um, unfortunately, uh, sexual orientation and attraction is often, you know, wielded as uh, one of those factors. Well, there are other things in um, in the book that people have tried to ban um, over and over and over <laughs> again, um, which people from every society have always done. And one of my favorites is masturbation. <laughs> because, wow, people really tried to prevent masturbation. They invented graham crackers and cereal to try and <laughs> stop people, which is its own thing. The Greeks mocked it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Bible has this whole bit about seeds spilling upon the ground that apparently <laughs> bothered people. And this is another thing that fascinates me because, of course, as you note in the book, the vast majority of people do masturbate. So why try to prevent it? Why do cultures keep coming around to treating it as bad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's important to recognize that most true anti-masturbation sentiment crops up in places that treat sex and pleasure as shameful. Again, it's like that that aspect of control. Um, and shame is a very powerful tool, you know, making people feel that something that is extremely normal to feel is shameful is, is a great way to um, make them follow your rules and, and listen to you. Um, you know, when we talk about like how the ancient Greeks talked about masturbation, it was much more like it was something you did in private and somebody might make fun of you if they thought you were masturbating because you couldn't have sex, but there wasn't like a, a big shameful taboo around the concept of masturbating. And there have definitely been times and places where, um, you know, masturbation is considered super normal and healthy. So, um, I think it's just, I, I, I think it just comes down to how any given place feels about sex and about the body. You know, definitely there are times and places where the body has been considered quite, quite a shameful device and instrument of sin. Um, And so, you know, masturbation is like, I guess it's a little threatening, right? Because you can lock someone up alone in a room and they can still masturbate. So they can still um, have a good time. How dare they? (laughs) Like, you know, we took away your books because they're all sinful. You can't hang out with your friends, but, you know, everybody knows there's still something you could be doing. Um, so I think that's where all of the kind of like really kooky Victorian era masturbation devices come in is because it's just like, we just literally can't control this. Um, and that's threatening. And then there were, there was a whole, you know, medical movement that cropped up that blamed masturbation for various issues. Um, and that still like comes up periodically today where, you know, uh, you have like the, the Reddit the subreddit uh no fap which is about not masturbating to often the the stated goal is to like protect your male essence and cerebral powers and self-control and there's no scientific basis to that um you should it is healthy to masturbate as much as you want to masturbate as long as it does not interfere with your responsibilities or um happen in a way that causes distress to other people <laughs> Um, so yeah, no benefit to just like holding it in. I mean, I really think there's, um, a good kind of through line in here in, of the power of shame, Mm, because one of the things that you do talk about that you mentioned earlier is there's a section on sexually transmitted infections. Um, and of course, many of these infections are dangerous, like syphilis, (laughs) dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, but others can actually tell us interesting things about, our past, including, for example, herpes, which can actually tell us uh, which other species we have slept with. Um, and you actually noted that some t- scientists think that sexually transmitted infections should not be stigmatized. Um, and I mean, certainly you shouldn't in that you should probably try not to get one, but it's not a moral failing if you do get one. <laughs> like, yeah. it happens. But you also note that there are 
potentially some sexually transmitted infections that might actually be positive in some way. And one of them is called the GB virus. And I was wondering if you could talk about what it does. Yeah. So there's still a lot we don't know. Um, It used to be considered uh, kind of an offshoot of hepatitis, but um, now it is known to be its own thing. Um, And it shows up in uh, quite a lot of blood samples in studies um, of just like random parts of the population. And uh, it's especially common in uh, populations that um, have other STIs, including HIV. Um, And so we we know that it is sexually transmitted and it seems like um, a couple of studies have suggested that having it offers you some level of protection against HIV. It doesn't keep you from getting HIV, but it seems to maybe make the virus replicate slower. Um, Of course, the great thing now is that with um, antiretrovirals for HIV, you can get your viral load so low that it's undetectable, which means you can't transmit it. So um, really, you know, HIV is now, uh, with the right medication, a chronic illness, not a terminal one. And one that people, um, do not have to worry about transmitting to their partners as long as they are, uh, you know, getting tested regularly and taking their medication as prescribed, which is so, that is so huge. And the fact that people, there are a lot of people who don't know that, um, I think just says how stigmatized STIs are because like, Having, look, it would be great to cure HIV one day, like to just wipe it off the board. And there are some great trials for HIV vaccines. All of that is important. We have not beat HIV yet, especially in a lot of countries where there's still so much stigma that, you know, testing and medication is just not widely circulating. But like HIV doesn't have to be a big deal for a lot of the people who get it now. And that is incredible. Um and I don't remember why I started talking about that. Oh, so GVC, um, more research is definitely needed. It's possible that there are some confounding factors involved, but we know it doesn't cause harm. And uh, there is this idea that it might offer some amount of uh, protection if you also get infected with HIV. Um, and that that like might sound far-fetched to people, but it's really not when you think about the fact that... Um, humans and all organisms have really complex microbiomes. And of course, lots of people now are aware that their gut microbiome is very complex, but your whole body has a a bunch of different ecosystems. And it's not just bacteria. It's also um, fungi. It's also viruses. There are tons of viruses in your gut and some of them will cause problems. Most of them are just like chilling. You'll never know they're there. Um, And it totally makes sense that just like there are a lot of really beneficial bacteria that live in our bodies, that some of the viruses that live in our bodies um, might really do us some good. And there are other organisms where there is a much more straightforward connection between like they have the sexually transmitted infection and it's really important uh, for their like, you know, functioning. But uh, yeah, with us, it's still TBD, but I think it's a really cool avenue of study. And I think it's important to just recognize that an STI is no different from any other infection. Um, I mean, you know, when people were talking about like, should we be calling monkeypox an STI uh, because it was, you know, spreading so quickly uh, among men who had sex with men. Uh, And it's like, well, sex is the easiest way to spread anything that is a communicable disease. Like there are exchanges of multiple fluids, mucous membranes touch each other. Like it, to me, that really spoke to how absurd it is that we have infections. You don't have to feel bad about getting, and then there are STIs and there's this line between them. And I don't think it really serves us. I mean, yes, people should know that safe sex is important because of particular infections you can get. Um, But, you know, herpes is asymptomatic in most people who have it. And why does it make people feel like their world is ending to get a diagnosis just because it's an STI and people are real jerks about it? So that is something I would love to see change. Actually, it kind of brought me back around like the idea of an STI that might confer a benefit, which we know happens in in other species. I think 
was it fish or was it salamanders? Salamanders, I've learned from this book, are real freaky, <laughs> like real freaky. They're very freaky. Yeah. Um, but it actually brought me around a little bit to prokaryotes. You know, like they're handing off little packets of DNA, like we're handing off little packets <laughs> of like <Yeah>. viruses <laughs> and bacteria and things. No, absolutely. I remember I, there was a personal essay I read a few years ago. And I wish I remembered where, who wrote it, but it was someone who was writing about how she got mono from a guy who went on a date with her knowing he had mono and didn't tell her. And she ended up- How did you um, have the energy is what I want to know. <laughs> right. That's a great question, but I guess maybe the bar is so low for guys on first dates. But anyway, um, she wrote about how she had a really bad like post-viral syndrome, the kind that we are now just starting to really actually pay attention to because of COVID, but that has always been possible with lots of different um, infections. And she ended up developing celiac disease um, because uh, that is, you know, an autoimmune response where your body is like, ah, something bad is here. And they think it might be the gluten you just ate. So then they attack a gluten for the rest of your life. Really terrible, really um, can be a really debilitating chronic disease and also just a huge bummer of a diagnosis because uh, the world is full of delicious gluten, gluteny objects. Um, and she was making the argument that like this guy went on a date with me knowing he had this serious virus and he didn't feel like he should tell me or like not kiss someone because it wasn't something stigmatized. And she, if I'm remembering the essay correctly, she wasn't saying like, we should stigmatize all infections. It was more like, how absurd is it that like, if someone has asymptomatic herpes, they're told like, maybe no one will ever love you again. Meanwhile, people don't think twice about like giving someone the flu on a date and giving someone mono on a date. And those are infections that can absolutely mess you up, that can like threaten your life. Um, so I think we need to stop with the like STI exceptionalism is I guess what I'm getting at that like, yes, sex is an exchange of genetic material. And that means, you know, the firewalls are down, stuff can get in, but you know, when else that can happen when you're like at a kid's birthday party and they're sneezing on you so <laughs> or these days anywhere just anywhere that, that's true yeah <laughs> <laughs> um so i did have one last question that i think was really one of the things that i picked up through this book it is really easy when you are writing a book about sex to be reductive or mocking or dismissive or even enraged about different sexual practices. And mm -hmm. this book, yes, we covered mostly animal stuff because animal stuff is awesome. But <laughs> there's most of the book is actually about people. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's cheerful and it's funny, but you also thread the needle very well. You never end up insulting. Even when you are talking about urges that might hurt other people and should not be acted upon without a large amount of consent. And I was wondering what guided you through this? How did you approach some of these topics that are, you know, pretty difficult and very sensitive and very stigmatized? Yeah. Well, thank you so much for saying I threaded the needle because I, I care really deeply about that. So it, it means a lot. Um, you know, I think I was really, first of all, I didn't want anyone to come away from this book feeling like they had gotten kicked in the teeth by it. You know, I, I wanted everyone reading this, no matter what was going on with them, to feel like they could laugh along, to feel like this had been written by someone who was being compassionate and who, uh, who gave a damn. Um, because I think there is enough in the world about sex that makes people feel bad about themselves um, or that allows people to laugh at others to make themselves feel better. And that's not what this book was for. So I tried to just be very, um, to really think about like who, what every joke was being made at the expense of. And really, you know, there were a couple of things that were like probably pretty funny and wouldn't have really bothered anybody, but I was like, ah, better safe than sorry. And I'm very, I'm very happy that I did that. Um, and, you know, as for like how and, and 
why it it was important to me and sort of the the specifics um you know i think i as a, a survivor of um assault and and an abusive relationship and one where um sort of a a a lot of stigma around sex and desire was really weaponized by my ex-partner um and you know there are a couple of points in the book where the the bad behavior i'm referencing is something that i you know was on the receiving end of and the thing is that i know that people like my ex are not reading this book <laughs> but there might be like someone who's kind of the 14 year old version of my ex uh who's a dude who uh, is being told by a lot of people in his life that his bad behavior is okay um, or that like what he wants is so shameful that he shouldn't even try to like be good about it, that like he's inherently bad because he he wants this kind of sex. Um, so I was really, I I was writing for people who felt kind of lost in the way that I hoped was most likely to um, like actually help them heal and help them, you know, not cause harm to other people. Um, I didn't write this book for people who are already active jerks because um, <laughs> I just don't think they're going to be interested in it anyway. So they can read somebody else's sex book. Well, Rachel, I'm very glad you wrote yours. Thank you so much for being here, for getting down and dirty with us, for getting silly and serious with science on our behalf. Thanks so much. If you'd like to read more about Rachel Feltman and her book, Been There, Done That, A Rousing History of Sex, we've got links for you on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Why, yes, it is Canadian. There's more there. You can subscribe to the show. Please do that. You can send us a note. You can follow us on social media. You could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which would be amazing. And if you're feeling especially pleased, we've also got a link to our Patreon, uh, where you can help us out if you are so inclined with a monthly donation. All of that money goes to the hardworking editors and producers who keep this show going. No matter what, thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. 